0: Welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow. And today we have a really exciting show. I, I have my brother David Moscow on and my dad, John Moscow, on. And they've both um they've co-written a wonderful new book called From Scratch: Adventures in Harvesting, Hunting, Fishing, and Foraging on a Fragile Planet. And the book is going to come out. Is it uh what day is it coming out, guys? October 25th. October 25th, and on the 26th, you have an event here in New York City, right? Yeah, Barnes & Noble's
1: Tribeca on Warren Street. Uh, both of us will be having a conversation, a Q&A, a signing. Mom will be bringing cookies, everyone should come out.
0: Great, and, and what time is that? 6.30 to eight. Okay, 6.30 to eight, wonderful. So um, let's talk, and we'll, we'll remind people at the end of the show about that, but let's talk now about what your book is about. So maybe John, Dad, if you could start, Why'd you write the book with Rafe, David Rafe? Uh, we call him Rafe in the family. And um, what is the summarize the book for me if you can in, in just a few in just a few minutes?
2: Yeah, I think the book is a combination of um, travel and adventure and culinary. There are recipes from a number of chefs, and the history and economics and politics um, behind. Uh, food as it gets produced. Essentially, um, David had and has this show called From Scratch where he goes around the world and meets with chefs and they make a dish and then he has to source the dish from scratch, um, getting the ingredients and then bringing them back and trying to replicate the dish. And on the show, uh, which is on cable, on A and um, for a couple of years, and um, will be on a variety of platforms and history, plat- uh, history Channel as well. That you know, there's just so much that you can do on 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 a show, and he really wanted to be able to do much more in depth. And I'd worked with him on the show, and he asked me if I would work with him on a book. And we hadn't done a book together, so it seemed like fun to do.
0: So. Oh, David Rafe, what, what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to if you can tell me what your both your your big reflections on on the total experience have been and then perhaps you could talk about one of the specific sort of episodes or chapters that you find yourself coming back to again and again and, and reflecting upon.
1: Well, <clears throat> sort of the helicopter view, it was five years of, of, uh, on the ground research in essence. I mean, we were 20 countries, 25 chefs, you're going out, <laughs> you're going, you start the show cause you want to like eat great food, right? You want to learn how to make some food. <laughs> yeah. And then as you're out there, things start to come up and they, and they just sort of, it's like an itch that you can't scratch. We're, we're in the Philippines And we go out to make batiste, which is a a fundamental Filipino ingredient. It's fish sauce, but it's in everything. And so we go out. um, I'm I'm working with Margarita Mansky and her sister, Anna. They've got a restaurant in Manila called Wildflower. And they have a restaurant in L.A. called Republique. And they're incredible chefs. And so we go out. I'm making a meal with them. um, uh, Kilowin, which is like Philippine uh, ceviche. We go out to get fish to make fish sauce and we don't get any fish. And I asked the, I asked the fisherman, you know, is, does this happen a lot? And he goes, yeah, it didn't happen for his dad and it didn't happen for his grandfather. He has their boat basically. And, but for him, he, he was running out of fish or he he wasn't catching the fish that he needed. He was going further and further out, staying out longer and longer coming into conflict with, uh, China was building islands very close to where we were fishing, um, at the time still are. And so it was sort of like this, like, you know, that struck me and there was something there. Right. And you, and you would run into these moments where you're like, I was in Iceland and Iceland. So, so what we unearthed, like on peeling the onion there was that the South China Sea Um, has lost 70% of its fish in the last 20 years. And the territorial disputes that are going on there, where China is sort of moving, there's this nine dash line or 11 dash line that it says, this is Chinese territory. And it's really about fish. It's all about the ocean. And yet there's not going to be any fish there. So unless people reach across the ocean and say, you know, there's this territorial dispute and you think this is yours and I think it's mine, but unless we figure this out, there's not going to be, what we're fighting over is not going to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then something else occurred in, in Iceland, also around fish where, you know, Iceland had devastated the North Atlantic or, you know, they had basically gotten kill, killed, all their cod stock, uh, fish stocks. And then they, figured out, okay, we need to change the way we fish. And they gave every person and company, you know, a, a, a limit. And it changed Iceland. The, the, you know, Iceland doesn't have a fish overfishing problem. They've got a lot, an abundance of fish. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. And and my driver, who had been a cop, but now was sort of like um, a chaperone for for visiting people. He like gruffly was like, yeah, but you know, he was grumbling about it. I it killed the fishing industry. What they did killed the fishing industry, the, the local fishing towns. And in my my first thing, single, oh this guy's just you know pissed that there's now limits on the catch. But as we went deeper and deeper, we realized it that wasn't the case. As you unpeeled the onion, basically the the permits had the change in the fishing permits had brought had re- let the fish recover. But economically, it, all the fishing permits basically started to gravitate to these, what, five or eight families, dad, remember? Like So now- I don't remember the exact number,
2: but I do remember that what they did was they made basically a fishing stock market where the allowance that you had became an asset that you could use for mortgages, it it became capital. And then as you were saying, it became uh, centralized into a small group of families. And they, it was more convenient for them, for them to centralize the fish production process. And so instead of it being a situation where each of these small towns would have their fishing boat that would go out, come back, and they'd process the fish, now, A few towns had these fishing processing places and the other towns were devastated. And so people ended up having to move into the capital, into Reykjavik. So that the process of how they did it ended up having tremendous political uh, ramifications which had played out in Icelandic politics um, over the past, what, at least the last couple of decades.
1: Well, we, we found
2: out that the, this
1: new constitution that was voted, uh, that the voters accepted, has been in uh, a purgatory. They won't enact it because in it, it says that the fish stocks will revert back to the nation. Mm-hmm. Those families are going to have to give back the fish stocks. And thus, it has been stuck for the last five or seven years. Um, And they're not moving forward on it. So food production, you know, when you start getting into it, you know, the tentacles reach every part of society. It's just wild. I think when I first started, you know, doing the, the field work, I really was interested in how food tied community together and how people came together that the idea that A lot of Americans walk around thinking, you know, I'm on an island. I did this all by myself or whatever. And then it turns out that it takes 60 people to make a slice of pizza. So at the heart Mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. the most important sustenance, it's just not true. But as we went along, we learned equally important, maybe more importantly that the environment, um, what's going on with food production in relation to environmental collapse, global warming is, is insane. Um, and that really became, you kept bumping up against it. You couldn't deny it everywhere you went, whether it was seven years of drought followed by seven years of floods in South Africa, where these farmers are losing their farms left and right in the bread, bread of Africa. It's like, wow. Or in the Philippines, you know, the South China sea or wherever you went, um, you always ran up against you know how are you guys doing (laughs) and they'd be like it's crazy Mm -hmm. Um, so and that was something you can't really get into in any depth on you know A&E networks you know Mm -hmm. Uh, and so there were these stories that dad and I would kick around and we try and fit it into the show and that would be sort of the first thing that would get cut they'd be like (laughs)
0: <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Nobody um, wants to hear about that. Um. Let me let me ask you a question, Dad or John. Um. And I want to ask you actually the same question, Rafe, in a sec. So think about your answer. What after doing this project, what outstanding question did this project leave you with?
2: I think that. It left me with the sense that we know, we know what can be done. We know, for example, that as far as some of the fish that Rafe was talking about, we know that things like Marine Protected Areas, MPAs, which um, are a thing in the Philippines and also around the world where you, create an area and you sort of say, no, there won't be any fishing in this area. And then that allows the fish there to prosper and it ends up spreading beyond that uh, area. We know that these can work. We also know that the amount, the number of these and the extent of these that exist in the world is tiny compared to what's needed. And so the question is, are we going to be able to develop the political will, um, which is also of course the economic will, and to make the changes that need to be made in time. And it's interesting, just going back for a second to this thing about um, the the fighting over the, the fish in the South China Sea, or what the Filipinos call the Philippine Sea, is that as we were doing the research, We were seeing what Filipino fisher people were saying. And then when you'd look, you'd find that Chinese fisher people, the small fisher people, were saying exactly the same thing was happening to them. Um, And then you'd see that it's these huge fishing fleets uh, from every country you can imagine. China, the Philippines, the United States, Australia, I think France, um, other countries are all sort of, just these factory fishing.
1: One, one third of the boats, fishing boats in the world are in the South China Sea.
2: Wow. So, this, I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: Yeah, no, just to jump off of that, you know, the marine protected areas work. And, and like Dad said, um, you know, about 1% of the world, 1% of the oceans is protected when we need about 30% for it to really be viable. Um, But there was another thing that was sort of like um, people using, you know, conscious consumption, which is something that we talk about a lot in the book. Um, So one of the reasons why the Philippines is developing marine protected areas is because the EU, the uh, uh, EU citizens voted that they only wanted to purchase sustainable fish. So the EU basically passed a rule that they're only going to buy sustainably sourced fish and the Philippines would like to sell fish to the EU. So that is why they really got involved with starting these these MPAs. So our wallets, how we choose to spend our money consciously can make a difference. And and it goes back to, so you asked sort of like something I learned or I took away
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and meat consumption is a huge issue, a huge problem, uh, not only for the environment, um, but for our health, um, and actually for sort of, uh, the, the, the community, you know, I enjoy eating meat. I live in a, you know, my family, my extended family, my community, we eat meat and I, I'm not ready to change that yet, but I think that, Um, moving meat off the center of my plate for every meal is super important. You know, we did a thumbnail sketch of my animal consumption. I've probably eaten about 30,000 animals in my lifetime, which is an insane number. Yeah, And that doesn't even include like Vegas, all you can eat buffets, (laughs) Italian subs with lots of different things on it. So Mm. taking that, you know, really thinking about that and going, Holy smokes, that is not, that's not right. Um, and if you go back one generation to, you know, mom, she had meat once a week, once a month, you know? And um, so that's the first thing. Eating less meat and and buying it from places where I know the animal was raised humanely and where the people are paid a living wage, um, the people who who produce the food are paid a living wage that's a good start and that hurts my wallet. It also means I don't consume as much. So health wise, it's great for me. Um, it's great for the community. It's great for the earth, better for the animals. Um, and so that was something I walked away from. There, there were a few sort of lessons. You, there was a, um, just, there were neat things that we came upon that in the city, living this day-to-day sort of hectic existence you don't run into there was a Travis who's a, a mushroom guide up in the Pacific Northwest. He was saying that, um, he battled sort of seasonal depression and now because he hunts mushrooms when fall, when the dreary, you know, Seattle rains come, everyone else gets really sad and starts to get depressed and mm-hmm. he gets excited because mm-hmm. mushrooms are here and he's going to go out and, and hunt and that's what we did. We went out in a drizzle, you know, and mm-hmm. um, and it was wonderful. It was exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are places in the world where, you know, the Finns do it. The Russians do it. Um, but it seemed so exotic to me <laughs> as a New Yorker, as an mm-hmm. Angelino.
0: Mm-hmm. And then and then a big question that you come away with.
1: Holy smokes, this is it, it you know these these conversations a lot of times if you if you sort of unspool the thread if you pull the thread of the sweater mm-hmm. it ends with is humanity going to survive mm-hmm. whether you're talking about the political conflict in the south china sea i mean people talk about world war 3 you know could come out of russia or israel palestine or india pakistan but the battle over fish among those eight nations is its not going to get better. And then you're, you're looking at, you know, I have a, my wife is Filipina and I've been there a few times and, you know, obviously her family. And you just look at the, the Philippine culture, you know, food culture is based on rice and fish and fish is possibly going to go away. In the research that we did, you know, the the question that reoccurs is, will we learn in time? I think dad said that. Will we learn in time? Mm-hmm. Uh, will we be able to fix ourselves this machine of unconscious consumption that we are? I mean, <laughs> we're pressured. We're pressured into just buy, eat buy, eat, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. without any reflection, um,
0: and it's tough. Yeah. The machinery is tough. Mm-hmm. What I ask you guys about, and you can, either one of you can respond or both of you can respond. You both, you you co-authored the book. Dad is a professional writer, a grant writer, and you are a filmmaker and, as well as an actor. I'm wondering if you can talk about the you sort of done this show on two different mediums. And I'm wondering if you could talk about the limitations of telling the story in in print and then the limitations of telling the story um on, on television. Besides the, you know, the pressures from A and E, of course, but actually the medium itself. What are the limitations of the medium?
1: I think it's it's hard to you you can't so what a and e is telling you is really about the pressures of the television of the medium of television mm-hmm. so people have expectations when they turn on a cable show on saturday mornings in the outdoor block on history channel right and if you start to veer i mean the hope was i was going to you know, put the medicine in the ice cream. So I was going to use the structure of these adventure shows. Mm -hmm. um, And I was going to, you know, tell stories that might not, that might not be reaching these people because sort of A&E's main audience is in the middle of the country. So I was like, okay, so let's talk about food production. Let's talk Mm -hmm. about, you know, larger issues and, They, they're not there necessarily to, to watch that. Um, And so A&E, the battles that A&E were talking to me about, it wasn't anything that A&E was, you know, they didn't have an agenda except that they wanted people not to turn the channel. Right. And so how do you, um, how do you tell stories that are unexpected In a way that people will stay tuned and want to watch, Um, and and I think we did a really good job, you know, walking a fine line. I mean, we grew, uh, uh, we grew from fifteen thousand viewers in our first episode to one hundred and sixty-five thousand viewers, so you know, ten times um, in our last episode, Um, but there were, you know. I don't know how many arguments it was like. Cut twenty seconds here, mm. you know. They don't want these liberals from New York telling them. <laughs> I think,
2: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and it's just like, um, and then and then with the book, I feel like it was a lot more free. Um, in fact, our agent slash attorney um, kept pushing us to to delve even deeper, to look inside even you know not be so shallow and and really sort of like invest emotionally, uh, do more research that maybe other people hadn't uncovered. Um, And that was super freeing.
2: Um, Do you feel that way, Dad? Yeah. I mean, I'm very much a print oriented person and I found it. um, I really liked the way our, different experiences and our different styles were able to mesh. And how when we started, we we looked at each chapter and we said, let's 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 use roughly the structure of a New Yorker article. And what that translated into was that it would sort of flip back and forth between your experience and your reflection on that, and then sort of historical or economic, you know, uh, or political background to it. And I think we did a good job uh, of meshing that. And I found that, um, you know, at first it was intimidating to think that, okay, we want to, you know, fill, have 6,000 words, six to 7,000 words as a chapter, Mm -hmm. and, I think that it actually worked out well and Mm -hmm. that it was a um, it really taught me a lot about the structure of, of writing a book, um, which had always felt, you know, I mean, I do write grants and, you know, but grants are generally, you know, for the most part, you know, 30 pages double-spaced and the idea of, of writing something, you know, that turned out and I'm, Looking at it right now, mm-hmm. and it was, you know, like 300 and something pages by the time you counted all the notes and all the rest of it. And and, and it recipes,
0: actually, I should say. And recipes, absolutely.
2: So, so it was, I found it very freeing.
1: There was a funny thing when we first were approached to write the book, because it was actually um, an attorney friend of mine and his wife had been watching the show. And he reached out and was like, you, you should write a book and I can help you. I'll, I'll send you to an agent and and let's do this and i was like oh my goodness so i i called dad and was like what do you think i would like your help on this and he was like he was like um will it be good i i was afraid would mm. we finish it <laughs> and he was afraid if it would be good and mm. i was like oh it'll be good and mm. he said oh we'll finish it <laughs> and then, so then we agreed yeah um But I think
2: along the way, I have to to interrupt you, though. You were more than directive, you you, more directive than that. You didn't ask, you know, would I? You said we're doing this. (laughs) Well, yeah, that was why I needed to make sure that it would get finished,
1: because I was directing you that we would do it. Um, But uh, yeah, no. And and I think both of our. It's a nice it's a nice to have those worries, to have those fears. Right. Mm -hmm. Because You'll do a good job if you have those fears. Mm -hmm. Um, and in fact, you know, come chapter nine, um, I was like, Oh my gosh, did we really say we have to do 10 chapters? Like (laughs) my worry of when we finished, it was like bubbling up. Um, but I, I always felt that it was going to be good. And, and, you know, the stories that we had worked on, on the show were super dynamic anyway. And, um, and food production is so like, I mean, it's part of us. It's, it's part of our humanity. It's like, you know, getting in the dirt and, and um, it, it immediately connects. So I, I didn't I didn't worry, you know. I knew that we were going to make a good book okay. and so far. I mean, the response has been
2: really lovely. So it's
0: been, it was a fantastic it, it is a fantastic book. Um, I, I just finished this week and it's, it's great. It's super enjoyable. Um, I want to come to our last segment. Uh, we have, uh, I'm going to cut this part out, but we have about eight minutes, eight and a half minutes before the Zoom end. So I think we can get it in. Um, I want to come to the last, the last part of the, the show. I'm going to ask you, either one of you can take these questions, though. The last question is for you, Rafe, but, um, I want you to, these are quick questions, quick answer questions. I've got a bunch. Um, so let's begin. I, I am mostly eating. I'm eating vegan all day long. I'm I'm doing this vegan before. Mark Bittman's vegan before six diet. Can I, during the day, eat oysters?
1: (laughs) That's an argument that we discuss in the book. Are are, are oysters vegan? And um, there are... The answer
0: answer is, what do you think? Well, I'm not vegan. Oh, right. But, But can I, as a... S- semi-practicing vegan eat oysters? Uh, yeah, sure. I th- I, well, I think that the it's really interesting that the answers that you get
2: from vegans mm-hmm. are different mm-hmm. because some of them say that the key element of being a vegan is that you're not causing pain to an animal. And they argue that uh, oysters don't have a central nervous system and therefore they don't feel pain. And certainly... Um, restaurant owners <laughs> tend to take that position. And then on the other hand, you mm-hmm. have vegans who say you're just sort of like making convenient excuses and, you know, they, they're animals and therefore you shouldn't be eating them. Okay. So there, is no, there is no definitive answer. There is answer. no definitive really answer. Is, that's
0: too bad. It,
1: it really is for
2: you. You yeah. need to
1: figure out what you feel comfortable with. And yeah. that's basically what we get. From interviewing the different vegans and reading the different, you know, uh, uh, the the research on
0: it. Okay. So, um, but I guess this question is for Rafe. Um, you met lots of people on the show, or while doing the show, you met some very famous chefs, some less famous fishermen. Um, wondering if there are two people that you met that you'd like to have dinner with, they could meet each other, um, and it would be a really interesting dinner. Who would you have?
1: Oh, wow. That's a, that's a really neat question. Um, We worked with a chef, um, Virgilio Martinez. He's the head chef of Central in Lima, which is the number two restaurant in the world. Um, And he is this mad genius. Um, And uh, he is almost, I mean, it's almost like a museum because he's restoring food practices that the Incans used 500, 600 years ago. And, um, and his food, the food is, um, his meals are good. And if they're not good, they are, um, challenging. So we Hmm. potatoes, you know, most of the potatoes that we eat are originate in Peru and he, he, and, and initially, you know, wild potatoes are poisonous and the way that you can, um, the way that, that, people used to be able to eat them is they would wrap them in clay because the clay saps out the, um, the poison and, and you would like wrap them in clay and put them in the fire. Um, and he took this mound of sort of ancient varieties of potatoes and balls of clay and put it like on a mound on your plate. So it looked like a bunch of rocks. Cause these potatoes look like little rocks. And then he had a sauce next to it and you would take bites of the clay and bites of the potato. And I, it was not good, but it was like uh, mind blowing.
0: <laughs> um,
1: and then, and then I, I got to uh, meet, uh, I got to interview Richard Leakey, um, the, uh, very famous paleoanthropologist who sadly has passed away mm. since, Um, I did one of the last interviews, possibly the last interview that anybody has done with him. And um, I think the two of them would have an incredible Mm. conversation about sort of like ancient humans and food and um, how important. I mean, (laughs) Leakey, I had had met with an anthropologist in South Africa who said that you know, the beginning of food, cooked food was in South Africa. And leaky was like, "What?
2: <laughs> and you
1: could totally tell like the battle that goes on mm. sort of in this sort of like ancient fossil world of and 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 the amount of money that rides on Kenya being the place of early man, right? And South Africa was sort of like trying to steal it from him. and um he uh, uh, Leakey said this really neat thing where like I was like. You know, that fire was, you know, I had always understood that, you know, people getting fire and using fire to cook was the most important step and, and possibly an evolutionary step. And he was like, well, having a sharp edged knife or ha- having sharp edges was even more important. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, well, if you're out on the savannah and you kill a wildebeest, and there's a bunch of protein there, calories there, but you cannot bring it back to the to the village. Then it's a waste. But if you are able to carve it up with a sharp edge, and now you can carry that protein, those calories back and feed the village, that is important. And uh, and I had never I had never thought about that that the, yeah. the cutting edge was the evolutionary step, not necessarily fire. So I think he and Virgilio would be. And Verheely, both of them, I mean, obviously, brilliant people. Um, there is a funny thing about the leaky interview. The day before I had been attacked while harvesting honey, <laughs> I was attacked by bees. <laughs> and they had stung my face. And my face had blown up, so I looked like a Klingon. Oh, my God. And, and I arrive at Leakey's, and he's like, he never, polite to the end, never mentioned anything um, <laughs> about my face. But I couldn't be on camera like they shot from behind me Wow! And the whole time. Like there's moments where like we're not asking questions and we're kind of like just I'm looking at notes and he's just staring at me
0: baffled. <laughs> wow. I'm wondering why you think that there is such a fascination with. With cooking shows um, in a time where at least. Most of the people I know get their get their food from from Grubhub and, and Seamless. What do you think's going on? Um,
1: well, I think the the city experience is different than what's going on in the rest of the country. Okay. Like that's what I learned on the show as a city guy going out. So I think the cooking shows are um aside from just food porn and there's research done in this that it like taps a lot of the same. Um, circuits in our brains as drugs and sex. But um, I think that people are, and COVID was part of this too. I think people are kind of like looking for something a little more authentic than just um, what has been served up at McDonald's for the past Mm -hmm. years. And so I know a lot of, you know, my community grew, planted gardens and started cooking during COVID um Mm -hmm. and we we you know talked about it in the book i was hunting in wyoming in the middle of covid and hunting rates went through the roof hunting has been basically uh fading away Mm -hmm. i think it's down to like five percent of the country uh hunts now um but during covid it went up you know for certain demographics like three times as much wow Um, and and normally hunting um you know a lot of people give what they get to to food pantries um but actually the opposite happened during covid people were hunting and keeping it mm. the food pantry you know um donations went down with wild game because uh you know people felt uncertain um so it was <laughs> I um I pitched an, a show um to a and E that included Martha Stewart in it and this was during you know i wanted her to come and be a part of the from scratch world a mm. and e were like ah we don't know about martha and i was like she's an icon like what are you talking about and then it, the pandemic came and hgtv gave her a show about garden gardening mm. and the president of of, uh, of my network called me up and was like that was a good idea. You were, you were awesome. <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? So yeah, I think that there, people are looking for something authentic. Right. I think. Um, and I think also restaurants are moving in that direction. You know, you go back 20 years and there were lots of bad restaurants out there. It's harder and harder to stick around mm. in the restaurant world, unless you're making really good food. Um, and that's, and that's a change.
2: I think so oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead, Dan. I think it's also that there similarities. I agree with what Ray's been saying, and I think that there are similarities between the popularity of cooking shows and um, house shows, people building houses or remodeling houses, and probably also sports, because they're all things where people, they relate in some way or another to people's lives. I mean, everybody eats, uh, everybody, you know, either does or wants to live in in a home Um, and people are connected to sports, whether they, you know, actively play or or not. But you're watching um, really skilled people doing something really interesting and really well that can relate back to your life in one way or another. And I think that that does go back to this authenticity thing, although obviously a lot of the shows themselves are carefully staged so that it's not pure authenticity, but it it has the appearance of it.
0: Mm -hmm. So I don't know what it was. It's probably about 10 years ago, 538, did this um really interesting thing where they did a, a a world cup of food so um this question is for Rafe because he's the one who traveled to all these places I've created brackets for all the places or most of the places that you've been and what I want you to do is I want you to think about the totality of the cuisine or as much of it as you've as you had in each of the places and I want you to tell me which is the better cuisine and then we're going to get to a champion does that sound good
2: <laughs> All right, this
1: sounds
0: good. Okay, good. So you have to you might want to write down what I'm saying just to, to keep track of who's who's in what, you know, um which bracket. But in uh-huh. in bracket A, you've got New York and in bracket A, you've yeah. got the you got New York and the Amalfi Coast, but they get a bye, those two teams, because they're so strong. Um they're our top seed. And then in bracket B, you've got Sardinia and Peru, uh, who has the bye. So In the first round of bracket A, we have Texas versus the Philippines.
1: Ooh, Texas, Philippines. Wow.
0: Mm. This is a, a, this is, I'm gonna have to push you a little bit on the time. Um, You gotta make up your mind a little faster. (laughs) <laughs> no no this, no this no is thinking. like a and e you're yeah, like a and e exactly there's nothing. no you're like a and e we can't I, I gotta have a thought uh, no no thoughts here wow um this is this is a hometown call this is the right. philippines, I right, just gotta, the philippines. Uh, okay and then um kenya finland uh kenya finland finland all right you really are going fast now Phil, um, philippines finland
1: oh my gosh finland how is and, that you know so, i would talk so, about
0: the philippines yeah explain well, that well look one. look
1: let me let me explain the philippines is is a lot of um it, it's a lot of meat these days mm. and um and look i love i love grilled meats um and i love uh, soups um but um finland is at this crest of scandinavian cooking that's going on right now and um it's pretty, I mean, you look, Noma is like the top restaurant in the world. You go all over uh, uh, the, the Nordic countries, these islands, The um, uh, they're just doing amazing stuff. And that chef that we worked with there, uh, Yari, um, was incredible, was phenomenal.
0: Okay. Um, so in the same bracket, uh, now we get to New York versus the Amalfi Coast.
1: I'm going to tell you something, and this is hard. This is hard for you. Yeah. Here. This is hard for me to say.
0: Yeah. But New York is slightly overrated. But well, I, I, It's not hard for me. I, I totally agree with you.
1: Well, I, oh, oh, OK. Yeah. I mean, New Yorkers are now going to, you know, but I, I'm going to like the Amalfi. I mean, Italian food is 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 pretty amazing across the board. And, and the seafood um, pizza came from there. Um, and uh, pizza alone, <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> pizza
1: alone is is amazing um and uh you know going around the country like i have uh, uh, america um you realize that new york obviously has wonderful restaurants um but uh but it may not be the best city food wise in in america
0: wow yeah i mean i would put los angeles i would put los
1: angeles as sort of this the most underrated food city in America. It's yeah. unbelievable. Mostly yeah. because of the, the ethnic food that's here. Like you've got incredible um, Central American, Mexican, got amazing Asian. And the way that Los Angeles is built, you have enclaves where it is like you are going into mm-hmm. Guadalajara. You're going mm-hmm. into Taiwan. It's mm-hmm.
0: phenomenal. Yeah. So let's finish out with this bracket, with this uh, side of the bracket. Amalfi and yeah. Finland? Amalfi. Okay, so Amalfi is going to represent one side. Um, yep. That's in the finals. Let's go to the other side. Malta, Istria.
1: Oh, my gosh. So, wow. So, let's go with Istria. It's. It, I feel bad because we just did the Amalfi. Mm-hmm. And Istria really is um, sort of, it was Venetian for so long. Mm-hmm. That it has a lot of um, Italian influence, but you also get Eastern Europe in there yeah. because you know if you go just a little bit over to Zagreb, it's it's like sausages and potatoes. So there is that really cool like inflection, uh, you know. Um, so so let's go with let's go with Istria.
0: All right, and then South Africa, Iceland,
1: Iceland. Wow, and. You know, um Dill again, again, the, sort of the skin the Scandi. food. Yeah, food
0: I'm I'm really popular. surprised by that. Um so it's like Scandinavian over barbecue in both cases.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, because look, grilled meats is is amazing, but people can grow people all cultures grow meat. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Know? what do you do with the rest of it? Um, you can't th- eat you can't eat uh <laughs> my, most of my crew is South Africa. If they hear mm-hmm, this. So yeah, yeah. Um but you can't eat like, you know. Uh, um, what do they even call it? Never mind. Let's move on. All
0: right. Um, this is this should be the finals anyway, but it's not. Uh, Peru, Sardinia. Peru. Whoa, whoa. Peru now, is.
1: I, I'm. This is going to give it up too early.
0: No, no, don't give it up. I won't give it up. Tell us. So, um, uh, Iceland, Istria. Istria. Oh. And then Peru, Istria. Peru. Now. You, that leaves us with the final of Almalfi and Peru. Peru. Wow. Explain. Peru is probably the best food
1: culture right now. and and it and it has sort of its history um it has some of the most influential ingredients, I mean, tomatoes, potatoes. Chocolate is arguably Peruvian Um, and you go. And so the restaurant Central, we talked about Virgilio His what he does is it's a 17 course tasting menu with each. uh, uh, Tasting um, different and they're altitudinal, so you start at sea level in Lima and then you go up a thousand feet. And then you go up another thousand feet, and then you go, oh, to the top of the Andes, then you go back down on the other side into the Amazon, and you're tasting a, a dish from each of these places. And it's not just, you know it's not just like this, you know, ridiculous test that he just came up with. If you have potatoes, if you see a, a, a sort of an old woman come into a market with potatoes in a sack on her back, and she's walking from her village those potatoes are probably only found in that village at that altitude anywhere in the world. So like these are very specific ingredients. Um, and he, he's, I think there are three of the top 10 restaurants in the world are in Lima. Um, and then, uh, you know, there's there's a uh, tipa, which is Peruvian Chinese. There's Japanese Peruvian, um, which is called... Uh, Nika, Nikkei and um, yeah just amazing. I highly recommend Trip to Lima and eat your way across (laughs) all the restaurants there.
0: (laughs) Well, um, again, thank you Rafe, David and John Dad for for coming on the show. Um, Tell us once again um, the the release date and um, when you're going to be in New York. The
1: release is October 25th Um, We're being distributed by Simon & Schuster. Our publishing house is Permuted Press. And uh, we're going to be at the Barnes & Noble's Tribeca on October 26th at 6.30 to 8. Please come down. um, Join the Q&A. We're going to have cookies, like I mentioned. And we're also going to give away some prizes. Um, So if you buy a book, um, you'll be entered in. And there is a really cool Peru prize. So there's actually an Icelandic cookbook from, from the chef that we have that we worked with in Iceland. Um, the hunter chef, uh, um, Jesse, who owns De- De De Dewey in, uh, in uh, Austin, gave us a signed cookbook. So the three prizes will be, you know, those two cookbooks and this amazing sort of from scratch experience in Peru. Um, so come down, buy a book by 10, give, find your Christmas presents on October 26th at the Barnes and Nobles in Tribeca.
2: Yeah, and, and it's Barnes and Nobles that said that um, we could have a raffle, but it had to be people who actually bought the book there at the store. <laughs> all right. And, and, and thank you, Lev. This was uh, really fun. Yeah. Uh, I, I just learned a lot, listen, even after all this time of working with Rafe on this, Uh, Your uh, brackets thing was really fascinating.